Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Brian Williams was a segment producer and talent booker for all eight-plus years of The Late Late Show with James Corden, booking all of the stand-up comedians on that show. Before that, Williams had similar jobs at The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon and Late Show with David Letterman. Williams joined me over Zoom during his first week of unemployment after the end of Corden's run to talk about his start as an intern with Letterman, watching submission tapes for stupid human tricks and stupid pet tricks, booking talent for Letterman, Fallon, and Corden, and how those hosts and shows differed, and what the future might hold for stand-up comedians on late-night TV. Or late-night TV, for that matter. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Ryan, I have you on the podcast because up until a few days ago, your life was booking stand-up comedy on TV for the better part of two decades, right? That was a huge part of it. Yeah, I do what I did book other guests for all the shows that I worked on as well. So um, it was never as if I was ever a, uh, solely booking stand-up, um, but stand-up is definitely the thing that I booked that I'm the most proud of on the show. I was I was going to say, I, I don't know anybody who grows up and they're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they go, oh, I want to book stand-up comedy. Obviously, that's not the, Absolutely. the dream. So, so how did you, where did the idea of being even like behind the scenes of television as a segment producer, as it were, where did, where did that start to germinate for you? I grew up a huge fan of Late Show with David Letterman. Um, my parents were big fans. They went to New York for their anniversary to sit in his audience. We would watch taped late shows after dinner at like 8 p.m. Um, so I felt like uh, I was a, huge, a big fan. Um, I went to school in Maryland, so kind of working in a late night talk show didn't really seem like something that was possible until I was at a party and met someone who was just coming back from an internship at Saturday Night Live. And mm-hmm. I thought, wait a minute, you can live in Maryland and then go to New York and then come back and have an experience <laughs> like that. So I thought, well, I've got to apply at Letterman. I've got, and then I also love The Daily Show. I also love SNL. I'm going to apply to these three places. Uh, Letterman brought me in for an interview. I think mostly because I was working with, uh, the local television, not the local television station, but the on campus television station. Okay. I think that's one of the things that they really looked for and brought me to New York to be an intern. And I got the internship, and it was a highlight of my life. And I got to meet Pat Farmer, and I got to meet Art, the receptionist, and I got to meet all of the the sort of behind-the-scenes casting characters of The Letterman Show that sort of I'd grown up kind of laughing at over the years. Um, started there in the human interest department, which was part of the talent department. And our goal was kind of to always find weirdos from like small town news or sort of find stupid human and pet tricks stuff. Okay. Um, and so from there kind of took on more and more responsibilities until at one point, I don't know if you remember, but there was a kerfuffle with Letterman's stand-up booker at the time who did an interview with the New York, New York times that didn't go down well. 
and they needed to find somebody to kind of fill that role. And the way they did that, I think, was really creative is that and that they gave three kind of junior members of the staff, um, so, so a writer's assistant, two, a writer's assistant, one of the executive producer's assistant and the talent kind of guy, um, the opportunity to start like putting together stand up showcases. So we were not, we weren't in a decision making kind of capacity, but we were the ones sort of on the front lines finding funny people to sort of put on one after the other at Caroline's so the executive producers could watch and say like, we like that guy. We like that gal kind of a thing. Right. Well, you just kind of spent through six years of your career <laughs> in that answer. So there's so much of it. I apologize so if it was too. Uh, so yeah, let's, take a step, let's take a step back because, okay, so your internship was in the human. I love, I love that there's a department called the human interest, not not to be confused with human relations or human resources, <laughs> right. human interest. And that involves the stupid pet tricks and stupid human tricks. And so, athletes and politicians and chefs and people mm-hmm. from the news, your subway heroes, your Captain Sully Sullenbergers, like those types of people who don't necessarily have representation, like an agent or a manager or something like that, or a publicist. Right. But, but those ones you're, you're coming across because they show up in a headline somewhere. Whereas the stupid human tricks or stupid yeah. pet tricks, <laughs> how many videos are you watching to decide yeah. which ones to actually invite? In terms, like, that is one of the things that's most interesting about the, not to toot my horn, but, own horn, but the career, is I was there when it went from people submitting submissions on VHS and other forms of cassette tape. Mm-hmm. So literally had one of those things that was a VHS tape, but you could plug all the other different sizes of tape into it and still watch it on your VCR. Uh, so we would get, like, a handful of submissions that way from fans of the show. But then... Part of my job was to call different CBS affiliates all around the country and ask them if they wanted to put on stupid pet and human trick auditions. It's a great sort of marketing opportunity for you to work with a local pet store or to reach out to a local, you know, car lot. And it's an event that'll bring a lot of people. The radio might show up to see all the people who came. And so that was maybe the first two years. And then YouTube got invented and everything, um, sort of shifted immediately towards towards YouTube, where I would get like a, an email through the, you know, stupid pet trick mailbag. And whereas before I, I would have to say, you know, find a friend with a camcorder and put together a, a video submission reel, I can just say, click on this, make it a private link, say like, hi, my name is Tanya, I can tie my legs in a knot, and then do it. And mm-hmm. then uh, we'll be able to give you really quick feedback either way. But it Whoa, really so, changed the game, and that yeah. Time. So when it when it got to to the YouTube stage, so then you're not relying on the local affiliates to do like regional competitions, as it were. What what were what were your guideposts in terms of your you're what you're sitting here like you are now sitting in front of the computer, you're watching a private YouTube video. How do you decide to pull the trigger and go? Okay, this this one's worth. It's kind of like that thing of pornography where you know it, where you see it kind of a thing. Um, okay. But the, the sort of things that you always kept in mind are that this isn't about circus acts. You know, if somebody's coming out with a bunch of bowl, like juggling pins and tossing them around, that's not a stupid human trick. Like a stupid human trick is something that somebody could do in their garage or, you know, at the bar or someplace with a minimum of props that, uh, 
you know, is either a display of some sort of physical talent that you've never seen before or an odd combination of ideas. Uh, but it could really run the, or, you know, like an adorable person doing a ridiculous things. Like mm -hmm. there are a lot of different ways to, to kind of land in that sweet spot, but it was very much, you know, you know, it when you see it kind of a thing. Okay. And then, you know, in terms of like the, the evolution of your career to get into stand-up booking, there's two parts, right? Because you were at, you started at Letterman pre-YouTube. So it was also a time when being on Letterman was probably the be all end all for stand up. You know, you had, you had Letterman, uh, Leno to a certain degree, but it, but comics didn't see that as prestigious as doing Johnny Carson tonight show. Mm -hmm. But you had Letterman and then you had Conan and Ferguson. Yeah, Ferguson had a lot of stand-up on, I feel yeah. like, at that time. but um, Or at least would have new names on that I didn't know from New York. Right. But the thing about... There's two things about Letterman stand-up in particular. One is there was this, there was still this sense back then that to go on Letterman, you needed to wear a suit. Yes. <laughs> did that come from Dave? Did that come from Eddie Brill? Where did that come from? Honestly, I think that that just came from sort of one of those unstated kind of cultural facts that everybody kind of just accepted was part of the reality of it. It was never like a, a mandate or something embroidered on a pillow in the green room or something like that. But um, there were always times when somebody would sit down for like a guest spot wearing, you know, less than a suit. And it was like, oh, thanks for getting dressed up for us. Right. And I think that it kind of just spiraled out of that kind of a mentality. The other thing is that, you know, I noticed this just as a viewer on TV, as well as being in the audience, but also talking to a number of stand-ups. The thing about performing in the Ed Sullivan Theater is that you might have a six-minute set, but because of the way the audience responds, you can only do three minutes of it because there's so there's so many more applause breaks for for whatever reason. What, that what is was, very, very true. What, what did you see about that? I learned very quickly. And it was more when I started uh, booking at Fallon. It was, oh my God, this set ran four minutes, 45 seconds in the club. How are we now at six minutes? Now I have to go and sit in the edit room because the chat is really great and the, the games are really great and the comedy is really great. So we need, we really need to find a minute in the stand up because they were, everyone was expecting it to be five minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, in that sense, that is very real, that a, a late night audience is going to stretch a stand up set out. And you've got to kind of build that into it if you can. Is there something psychological about being in a studio audience that makes them clap? Because I know it's not always a flashing applause sign. People they're, they're doing Sometimes it. Sometimes it is a flashing applause sign. Okay. One place I work, they did have a flashing applause sign that I got the plunger for and was encouraged to hit when the audience wasn't responding to a really funny joke. Okay. The the rhythms are different, you know, at a stand-up comedy club, it, everything is very fast-paced the whole time. And on a late-night talk show, it's now we're in a commercial break. Now we're, you know, it kind of plods along in a certain way. And I, I think the, the, the pace in general is just slower on a late-night talk show. Mm -hmm. One okay. thing I did at Letterman that I, I want to bring up because I think it's so interesting is the one rule that we did get was no hand mics. Everybody had to be clipped with the lavalier because that's the way Dave did it. That's the way the monologue was. And it would look silly if we suddenly 
had a, a microphone on a stand somewhere. That's the only thing that I kind and I was never told that directly, but I think that that was a like a preference thing from day. That's like mm-hmm. I don't get the benefit of using a hand mic. Why are we giving it to these guys? That kind of a mentality. Well, and of course, Dave Dave came out of like being a, a TV weather guy, and yeah, so he was used to that kind of format. Um, and I think yeah, and I think he saw that this is a television show. We're not in a nightclub. There's no reason for him to have a mic on a mic stand. You know, it doesn't make sense to him kind of logically. But. Right. I I also remember he was, he was, you know, he has a YouTube channel now and he's, you know, doing things for Netflix. But in the beginning of the social media era, he was also famously anti social media. I think he was making jokes every day for a long period about Twitter and yeah, they, we and saying like www.w. He was just very anti-web. He would try to figure out how to tweet it at Jimmy Fallon or tweet at whoever. And right. it, he, I think, I think a lot of that came from a real place. And as you saw in that Netflix interview with Kim Kardashian, where he has his phone and it looks like it's been carved out of a pool noodle or something, <laughs> the kind of protective wrapper and layers of duct tape, you know, I, mm-hmm. he's a very, um, He's not a very digital guy. Right. So, I mean, that kind of like puts the, the onus on, on, on you even more, especially when you come into the job hot on the heels of my buddy Jason Zinneman profiling Eddie Brill, a guy who I've known for over two decades. What was that like in the, in the building? Um, it just felt really unfortunate. Like everybody really liked uh, and continues to like Eddie. He was a really sweet guy. And mm-hmm. it just seemed it, like reading the article. It was like, why does this exist? You know what I mean? Like who gained something out of this? Um, but and that was kind of the feeling, I guess, in the building. It was just like, why? But then the you said, you know, the job falls on you and two other people. Was there then sort of inherent pressure at the start to go, okay, well, we're going to book different people now, obviously in response. We can't book the same kind of people. We kind of mostly were grappling, I think, with the learning curve more than like kind of change, changing the direction of the show or something like that. We kind of wanted to see as many people as possible, as quickly as possible in the beginning, just to kind of get our feet wet in the world and meet as many people as we could. And so would have showcase after showcase after showcase for just us as we Mm -hmm. found people to kind of put into the more executive producer showcase. Um, And then everything was kind of viewed through the lens of is, is this the type of comedy that will like tickle Dave's fancy? Because wherever you're working, the first member of the audience is the host. And if the host, if the host ain't happy, ain't nobody happy kind of a, a thing. So that was the first lens. And then it was also about trying to prove that we could kind of do it. So one of the first people I tried to book was I saw Todd Barry was going to be in town and called up his representation. It was like, I know it's been, you know, maybe a decade since Todd Barry's done stand up on a late night talk show. He usually does panel. But, you know, if he would want to come on and do five minutes, we'd be thrilled to have him. So that was also a part of it, of trying to... Kind of keep the the level of talent as high as it was in terms of name value, but then also kind of branch out more in terms of not having the same people on again and again and again. Right. What made you then decide to join the the enemy ranks and <laughs> um, go from Letterman to Fallon? No, it was a really 
unique and interesting opportunity like that comes along so rarely in the late night world where Dave announced he was going to be leaving the show. The Fallon Tonight Show was coming to New York City or was going to stay in New York. They were, late night was going to become the Tonight Show. And I had heard kind of just from other people coming and going with stand-ups on the show that they didn't really have a stand-up booker for Tonight Show settled. So I thought, you know, if there's ever going to be an opportunity for me to step away from, you know, booking people who can turn their chest into a cereal bowl and eat with a spoon to something a little bit more legit, this seems like it. it. So kind of just put together a cover letter and a resume and sent it in blindly and didn't hear anything back for a couple months and then got a response. And so um, the, the Letterman show was coming to an end and this other new thing was beginning. So it seemed just like the logical choice. And everyone at Letterman was so excited for me when I left. What did you notice in terms of show di- directions from your bosses or directions from the network or even just the fact that you're you're booking people for a different venue in, in yeah. terms of the 30 Rock studio versus Ed Sullivan Theater. What did you notice in terms of the differences right away? I think um, there was a much more of an emphasis on name value on The Tonight Show, and it had and a de-emphasis on the actual content of the set. Um, and I think that w- was discouraging after a while and had a lot to do with why I eventually ended up leaving to move to Los Angeles. But... Um, it didn't feel like the stand-up that we were putting on TV few and far between was sort of the most creative choice. You know, had some sets on there that I'm still really very proud of, but also had some sets on there that were just like, really, is this what we're going to put on TV tonight? Uh, just because it's a, a star, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then you left for Corden for the start of Corden's era? Yes. My a supervisor of mine from the Letterman show who ran the whole talent department there was one of the people they brought on board to run the talent department at Corden. And I was very fortunate that she thought of me and thought and knew that I'd be capable of kind of doing the jack of all trades kind of work that would be necessary mm-hmm. in that spot. Who could book a stupid human trick, who could book a presidential candidate, who could, you know, book a stand up comedian and can book a musical performance. You know what I mean? Uh, kind of offered more than just a very narrow limited set of uh, set of skills to be also i mean working for cordon you're dealing with a host and an executive producer who are british so they might have a different mm-hmm. sensibility but then you're also dealing with a later time slot so you could probably get away with some more interesting choices right absolutely and i think um it was that was one of the reasons that was like encouraging me. It was like, okay, like if there's ever going to be a place to kind of have these more creative people on, this is going to be it. How much between the three hosts, how much inter- did you have more interaction with one of the hosts than the other two? Yes. Dave was very isolated as I'm sure anyone who's connected to the show would, would tell you. Jimmy was very personable with the staff. Um, Corden by far was the most engaged and involved with everybody on the show from the staff to the crew, to the guests in the dressing room. He by far spent the most time kind of face to face with the people who are coming through. And for booking for Corden, it's also a little different because that's the one show and, you know, it's kind of co-opting some British formats in terms of talking to the guests at the beginning Yes. So it's the one show where the stand-up gets to do a little hello 
at the beginning too. And I think that came from the Muppet show, as far as I know, that they would have the kind of celebrity guest in the opening skit every night, or they'd go around and there'd be a knock at the dressing room door. I haven't watched enough Muppet show recently to know exactly where we lifted it from, but I, I remember hearing that that was one of the inspirations for that bit. And to be honest, when the show started, I was told that there was no interest in booking stand-ups, really. That it was, you know, this is a chat show. This is going to be people on the couch. You're going to, you know, as excited we are that you did that in the past, we don't really think that there's going to be a need for that here. Mm -hmm. And in the production of a daily talk show, it becomes clear quickly that to have something that reliably and consistently and humorously fills an act of the show, that's incredibly valuable. And... And I think also they said that they weren't really that interested in stand-up, but then they hired people like Ian Carmel, Nate Fernald, James Davis, Sean O'Connor, Jared Logan, Dylan Adler. Like they, they hired really funny stand-ups. And I think that those stand-ups advocated for stand-up very early on and were like, James, why aren't we having any stand-ups on the show? And then that kind of opened the door for me to kind of start buying people. I mean, they also at a certain point put Ian in front of the camera as a exactly. de facto sidekick. And I think that that was one of the original, that's what they wanted to do at the show from day one, whereas they wanted to have kind of an around the horn feel where it's like, we're talking to Reggie, we're talking to Ian, we're talking to the EP over here. But I think pre-pandemic, that was very frowned on by sort of, I don't like the suits kind of a thing, like the people mm-hmm. who very much wanted it to fit a more traditional format. What what did you think, like, during the pandemic, obviously, all the late night shows did their own different thing. But what did you think, like, watching how the other shows adapted versus what you guys are doing? I think challenge breeds incredible creativity. And I think that these were a bunch of shows that felt very stale. And it was the same thing every night and had been that way for 20 years. And when the people had the rug pulled out from under them and still kind of had to go on with the show, you saw the best of all of them. Uh, And it was really reinvigorating kind of just as like a staff member of these shows. It felt like we're all in the trenches together. We've got to figure this out. Um, Things aren't going to be like they normally are. You know, it it kind of felt like trying to build a civilization after an alien invasion or something like that. Like we, we have to refigure out how we're going to do everything it was a really inspiring time in a lot of ways just to kind of see people go on with the show. What did you think of the, I think it was the tonight show that, that was beaming in sets from that were pre-taped and remote. Yeah. I'm glad that they, I think that that might go back to that thing of it's really hard to fill an act of a show, you know, when you have to generate so much content, I think that that probably had as much to do with, filling time as it did to like continuing to put consistent names on the show. But I might be wrong about that. That's complete speculation. I mean, pre-pandemic, Jimmy Kimmel opened up his own club in Vegas and was shifting it to there. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure. Kimmel, for some reason, never had a lot of stand-up on, but the stand-ups that they did have on generally were pretty good. I remember being impressed when they had Martin Urbano on pretty early. I was like, this is a really funny, weird set. But, you know, over the course of your 18 years or so in late night, not that it's over, not that your career or late night is over. (laughs) We'll Uh, see. We'll see. But the idea of and the importance of a stand-up comedy set on late night TV 
has gone through a bit of a roller coaster. And I wonder, you, you kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier in terms of Corden's show, not initially wanting it, but then seeing a need for it. I guess there's two things. Like, what what is the value of a stand-up comedy set to a late-night show? And then what is the value to the stand-up comedian? I would say the value of a stand-up set to a late-night show is you have one act of the show that's kind of already taken care of, a, a self-contained performer that you can bring in that's not going to have as many you know logistical hurdles as bringing in a seven-piece band or something like that. Uh, so the costs are much lower. And the time involved is much lower. And then you also get the kind of cultural credentials of having a, a, this funny person kind of on your show. Like if it's a, you're, whether you're making someone's late night debut and they go on to great things or something like that, like there is a certain amount of pride that comes from the fact of like, oh no, yeah, we had so-and-so and then they went on to do this huge movie or something like that. But beyond that, on the show side of things, I'm not sure if there's any real value because I don't think stand-up ever drove people to tune in to a late-night talk show. You know what I mean? Even on Carson, I don't think that the, the people were tuning in for the stand-up. Um, they were tuning in for Johnny Carson. So uh, I'm not sure that it does much in terms of viewership stand-up on late-night. For the stand-up themselves, I think that it's... uh really great credential. And I think that a credential of any kind is still really important in the stand-up world. Like anytime a stand-up goes on stage, you usually hear before they take the mic, the three or four TV spots they've done. So it, it obviously matters to them for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it matters from a marketing standpoint, as these people are trying to get, you know, college shows and things like that. If they can say, you know, I was on Corden, here's my clip. I think that there's nothing better than that to sort of prove that you're up for the challenge or that you're a responsible stand-up comedian or that kind of you've been vetted in some way. I I know, uh, you know, Jenna Friedman has a new book out and she talks about wanting to, wanting to, I guess she was probably talking with you about this, about trying to get, get a bit on, on Corden with, with her newborn. Before um, we went off the air, I really wanted to get a scandal in. And so I did my best. <laughs> I had had a clean career up until that point, but I am so glad I got one in under the wire. But what were there, were there other examples of, of performers or ideas that you really wanted to try to get on and just for whatever reason couldn't? A thousand percent. Like there are super funny people out there who just for whatever reason, it doesn't kind of fit what people think of as the late night talk show form um, and people who got very close and people who had, you know, a really strong three minutes, but we're still looking for another minute and a half. But in terms of, you know, promoting an exciting point of view, I, there are a couple like that, like Benny Feldman, I think is someone who's hilarious. I would have loved to have him on the show. Um, he's a comedian with Tourette's. He's super funny and has got such a unique point of view, but yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job. Were there other were there other acts that that just got outright rejected by any of the three shows you were at? Were you just like I really wanted this person on, and they were like, nope. Um, there were things that were kind of non-starters where it was mm -hmm. just like I remember one time at Letterman somebody referenced polio in their stand-up as, as a, like a toss-off, just a filler for any kind of disease, and someone higher up the chain was like, there is nothing funny about polio 
And so it was just like, okay, let's find something else. And, you know, for the most part, you want to avoid things that have a chance of making anybody in the audience uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And you also want to avoid stuff that has, you know, the opportunity of not aging well. Or the one thing that I kind of always think of that's the silliest example of this is I kind of had a considered like airplane stuff a non-starter or especially anything about like a bomb on an airplane or anything like that. Like if there was the chance that this person was going to be booked and then something would happen that morning, you know, mm-hmm. like I, it was still, that was a, a, a great fear for whatever reason. What was the impetus behind it? I know at Corden, there were also a few times where the staff was able to mount parodies of standup. I know Nate did a couple of them. Reggie yep. did one right near the end. What was the impetus for those? I think just the writers in Nate's case, he just had a really funny idea and James liked it. And so we did it. I don't think there was anything beyond it about that as like a commentary on stand up. Um, and then Reggie, uh, just as we were ending, we wanted we, to go to him and he also performed music on the show. And we just like, right. if you, you've got, this is your last chance to sort of get your creative yayas out. If you want to do anything, let's do it. And he kind of said, I want to be more of the Splattersby. And then, uh, it kind of went from there. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is twofold now. What's next for you and what's next for stand-up on TV? Yeah, right now, one of the reasons I reached out to to you to kind of do this is because up until this point, I have always had a job and I've always been in fear of losing my job. And now it seems like this might be an opportunity of a way to possibly get a job. So if anybody listening to this likes what you have heard, uh, I have a very specific set of skills that there is maybe no longer a market for. Um, if you can imagine a way of fitting this puzzle piece into your organization, I would uh, love to join it. But I, I am legitimately excited for this at midnight show. I think it, I have nothing to do with it, no knowledge of anything about it other than Spartina and Stephen Colbert and the people that are in that atmosphere are very smart, funny people and that they'll do a great job. Uh, but I just hope it's not celebrities, to be honest. Like, that's the one thing that I think it, everybody is kind of like, what if it's just, you know, really funny celebrities, but I hope they get some new people on there. I hope it's not whoever's in town promoting the Marvel movie on at midnight. You know uh, what I mean? Which it very well might be. Um, but, but we'll see. It could be, it could be a great opportunity because it was so many people got onto television for the first time from that show and have gone on to do great things. I guess then if you could book your own show, what's your dream show? My dream that, that you're show. booking. Yeah. You get to, you get to do the whole, you get to do the whole thing. I mean, that's the whole thing is like nobody wants to do a whole show like that's been <laughs> like, like being president of the United States or something. You've got way too much responsibility on your hands to do a you, whole show. You just want the human interest department. <laughs> exactly. It give me one little niche area that I can kind of uh, squeeze the most out of. That's sort of more my style. But if I could book any type of show, I guess it would be like almost like a Chelsea lately kind of panel show that would then almost kind of what David Spade was trying to do where he would do a panel thing and then also have a stand up on. Like, yeah. I think that that is a really fun way of doing it. Yeah. I was surprised and, that lights out didn't go. Of course the pandemic threw yeah. a wrench into it too, but I really liked lights out. I thought that was and a nice anything, twist on it. Anything that kind of what I watch a lot of standups now on YouTube on podcasts, you know, and it's uh, 
still really funny and it's not a tight late night stand-up set, but maybe, you know, a late night stand-up set is a very specific thing and it's maybe not its time anymore. Right. Yeah, people who people are trying to write my my colleagues in the media are trying to write the obituary for late night TV, but people are still going to be up late and they want to watch something. So what? And um, what do they watch? And I mean, if, and if it's the end of late night TV, then it's the end of TV. You know, it's all streaming. It's um, it, because late night TV is the people who've left their TV on after watching it all day. And if there's nobody left to watch late night TV, that's because they didn't stay tuned through the local news. That's because they didn't care about what was on at 10 p.m. That's because they got all of their information that they consumed all day long from the screen that they have in their hand or the screen in front of them at work. Like that's that's the real thing that I think is going to kill late night television is that it used to be a digest at the end of the day where you could have all the day's kind of important news kind of relayed to you in a funny way. You got to see the star that's going to be at the movie at the box office that weekend and you got to maybe see a little funny cat do a little funny trick and hear a new band that you hadn't heard before and now every single one of those needs is served in a 45 second package on a tiktok or an instagram reel or some sort of online content Mm -hmm. provider and if those if that itch doesn't need to be scratched anymore then maybe there's no need for a late night talk show to exist wow (laughs) <laughs> way, to, way, way to bring things on home, Ryan Williams. I've realized that you also hit the nail on the head. We're looking at this wrong. It, the way to save late night TV is to save your late local news. Yeah. A, are getting squeezed. Like Roy Wood Jr. put a spotlight on that so amazingly at the White House Correspondents Dinner, I thought. They are getting squeezed in a way. When I go home and watch television in Western Maryland with my parents, mm-hmm. it is prepackaged from some huge news conglomerate that exists somewhere. When I was growing up, it was, you know, local yokels kind of reporting on the street, on their feet about what was happening, like local journalism. And it's only going to get worse. Well, Ryan, I, I, I'm thankful you joined me before things completely fell off. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I think that we are witnessing something very unique. And I think whenever that happens, it's an opportunity for great creativity. So I hope that's what comes of it. Thank you so much. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last